Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Stephanie Phillips, with a touching testimonial to the influence of late pastor Tim Keller in her life. It was intellectually stimulating in a way I had not been exposed to before. He quoted literature and film and music, and it was just on all fronts, you know? I mean, I was challenged emotionally, I was challenged intellectually, and um, I didn't know that that church could be like that. Stephanie Phillips, next. Tim Keller ministered to thousands in the 28 years he pastored Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which he founded in 1989. Stephanie Phillips moved from Birmingham, Alabama in 2005, and shortly thereafter began attending Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Tim Keller, who passed from this life to the Lord on May 19th, through his teaching, helped Stephanie grasp God's grace as she never had before. Now living in Sydney, Australia with her husband and two sons, she wrote Tears of Hope and Gratitude in memoriam and anticipation, the new and not yet grace of Tim Keller for Mockingbird Ministries. Stephanie, tell us what made you want to write this piece about Tim Keller. Yeah, um, well, we knew that Tim was sick for a while, we being everyone who is, um, you know, aware of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the news came, it still struck me pretty hard. Um, I attended Redeemer. I was a re- member there um, when I lived in New York uh, between 2005 and 2010. And to say that he changed my life is really an understatement. We can get into all the ways that happened, but mm-hmm. um, I just, um, it was a profound shift in my understanding of the gospel when I heard him preach. And um, it hit me in a way that I didn't expect because, you know, we all saw it coming, but it was uh, profoundly sad. And um, I do write for Mockingbird. And when I'm processing emotions and things, um, a lot of it ends up there. So I wanted to write that for them to sort of work my way through it myself and just um, help other people feel less alone in their grief so that we could experience that together. Mm. And just uh, to give some context of how you ended up in New York City, tell us if you could, as much as you feel comfortable about the story, if you moved from Alabama with your mom to New York City, that's quite a move. That's culture shock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's hard to make it a short story, but basically I was, um, I lived in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up in Montgomery, uh, moved to Birmingham for college and then went to dental school there for four years and then did a um, residency in pediatric dentistry for two years. So I was in Birmingham for 10 years. Um, and while I was there, I can't say that I went to church at all while I was in college. <laughs> I went to a Methodist school mm-hmm. uh, with a chapel on campus, but you know, um, didn't really make it there. But while I was in dental school, it was a really challenging time for me personally. Um, I just, I had been all my life a consummate student, sort of built my identity on that. And when I was in dental school, I found myself um, surrounded by people who were a lot smarter than I was, a lot mm-hmm. more talented at what we were doing than I was battling my own mediocrity for the first time in my life. And um, I guess that more than anything drove me back to church. I hadn't had any renunciation of my faith or anything. I just um, wasn't attending church. So I heard about Briarwood from a friend, Briarwood Presbyterian, and went there. And 
this guy, the pastor there, Harry Reader, talked a lot about Tim Keller. He quoted him, and um, there was a Sunday school class that was reading one of his books. So um, after my residency, I just really wanted to get out of Alabama. All my friends were getting married. I was very single. Um, I needed a change. And I had visited New York in 2001 with my sister. And while we were there visiting a friend of hers, this friend recommended Redeemer. Um, this was, sorry, it was 2002. It would have been March 2002. So six months after 9-11 mm -hmm. was when we visited. And we didn't make it to Redeemer that weekend, but I always remembered that recommendation so that when I arrived in New York in 2005, that was one of the first places I stopped. Um, my mom traveled with me to New York. She didn't move with me. Um, I was really on my own. And so church was a place I wanted to go pretty immediately to find sort of a community to belong to. And so, yeah, I went to Redeemer the first Sunday I lived in New York. Uh, Tim was on sabbatical because he did that during the summer. But I believe it was David Bisgrove who preached that mm. Sunday, and he was incredible. Um, and it was just the gospel as I had never heard it. So I was hooked and I kept going back and became a member. And for five years, that was that was my church, mm. Redeemer. Now, when you say the gospel as you'd never heard it, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I grew up in the Bible Belt in the Southeast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my memory probably isn't as good as I'd like it to be. But what I do remember a lot of is just feeling that my relationship with God depended on, it was very transactional. It depended on me doing the right things. And that sort of cemented a deal between us, wherein if I behaved well and did the right things, things would go well for me. Um, so I don't know if I even would have articulated it that way, but it's clear to me now that's how I felt. So I felt that his love was very conditional. And when I went to Redeemer, I was, this message of the gospel was presented with the idea of grace, which I don't, you know, everyone's heard the word grace, but I don't think I ever really heard it defined or articulated. Um, and at Redeemer, they did that. You know, I understood that it wasn't about me at all. And that was incredibly freeing because I was, I was coming out of a period in my life where I felt like a failure in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And to find out that it, that none of that pushed me further away from God or even affected my relationship with him, except to drive me closer to him was incredibly liberating. And it was just a complete shift in what I had grown up believing. Well, my guest today on His People is Stephanie Phillips, and she writes for Mockingbird Ministries. And we're talking about a piece that she wrote very recently, Tears of Hope and Gratitude in Memoriam and Anticipation, the now and not yet grace of Tim Keller. And you uh, write, uh, Stephanie, in your piece that Tim Keller was uh, every bit as compelling as he was advertised to be, as you'd heard. What struck you? Can you? I know there were a number of things that were perhaps kind of new in how he presented the Christian faith? Yeah, no, uh, you know, I grew up going to church every week, and I didn't have, like, any fire and brimstone preachers, thankfully, mm. um, but I had heard them before. I mean, I grew up with sort of folksy, down-to-earth preachers, and, and that's a great thing, um, but I had heard preachers who yelled or who, <laughs> who were very emotive in their preaching, mm -hmm. And when Tim got up there, it was just amazing to me. He just talked. 
And it was like a conversation, but, you know, a one-way conversation, but it was such a conversational tone. Um, and it was also, I mean, I wouldn't call it a motive because he wasn't manipulative in that way, but um, it was intellectually stimulating in a way I had not been exposed to before. He quoted literature and film and music, and it was just on all fronts, you know? I mean, I was challenged emotionally, I was challenged intellectually, and um, I didn't know that, that church could be like that. And I want to get back to Tim Keller's uh, preaching and and his presentation of the gospel and all of that, but you said not only was Tim Keller uh, compelling, but the whole church was. You, you the, the way that the church was done was something you'd not experienced, and and uh, of course, it's in Manhattan. It's in the heart of New York City. Most of us listening to this have not experienced it either. Take us inside. What what, what did you experience? Well, um, you know, they have several different services, and I experienced a few of them. But the one that I attended most regularly, you walked in, and it was in the evening, which was also something I wasn't used to. Um, and you walked in, and there was um, usually some sort of jazz music playing. Hmm. I think that service was known for its, like, more... Uh, jazz themed music. And um, so you walk in and you're not hearing hymns or, or Christian contemporary music. You're hearing tunes that sound vaguely familiar, but are, you know, sort of jazzed up. And it was like walking into a salon or something, you know, like it was just, it didn't feel necessarily like church, but it had the vibe of welcomeness that a church, you know, tries to provide. Um, and then I would hear, you know, they would have musical breaks in between sections of the um, service. Hmm. And I would hear things like Johnny Cash, you know, or um, a singer songwriter would sing her original song. And it was all high quality. It, it wasn't like a kid's talent show. You know, it was <laughs> it was very these are artists in New York City. So they are of a very high caliber and they're drawing on all aspects of culture and society um, to to present, you know, their, their talent. And I just, yeah, I had never experienced that in a church before. I didn't know that there could be secular aspects woven in so that God became bigger to me than he really ever had been. And, and there's a photograph in your piece uh, on the Mockingbird Ministry site that has Tim Keller, uh, looks like he's speaking, and, and he's uh, surrounded, uh, it appears as if, as if it's something like an orchestra. Yeah, I, I, they, they pulled that that photo, and I don't know specifically what that was from, but it could have been a church service because they often had, uh, you know, multiple piece, you know, bands set up. Mm -hmm. um, it could have been a one-off event because they also just had showcases for people to um, to practice, you know, their talents. Um, it could have been so many different things. There were so many aspects of culture represented that um, that didn't feel like the church I knew. <laughs> And I, I don't know if this still applies. I, I'd read that uh, another thing that made Redeemer kind of unique is that it was made up, not entirely, but at least largely of single professionals. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I mean, that seemed to be my experience. I was a single professional at the time, so uh, it, it definitely drew mm -hmm. me there. Um, you know, my experience in church has often been that there can often be be a focus on just families, mm -hmm. almost to the idolization of a family. 
And this was a really, this couldn't, that couldn't have happened in New York, you know, because there are so many single professionals and they were drawn to Redeemer. And I think that was a, an intentional sort of um, strategy because what they wanted to do, what Tim and Redeemer wanted to do was help uh, single professionals thrive in the city so that the gospel would thrive. Um, and they knew that reaching that group would allow that to happen. So yeah, it was very much, um, you look around and it was a very young population, but it, but it spanned an age range. But yeah, I would say that was the largest cohort. Mm. And as you mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, he loved to make uh, references to movies and, and literature. And uh, I think you said sometimes almost, it seemed like they were almost happening as frequently as references to scripture, but especially the Lord of the Rings. Do you know what yeah. his, uh, why he was so taken with the Lord of the Rings? Well, so Tim has often been called like this generation C.S. Lewis, and he certainly quoted C.S. Lewis a lot, but he loved Tolkien. And um, he was an avid Lord of the Rings fan. And um, he, in fact, I went to a lecture once that he gave about Lord of the Rings. And it, he was doing things like that all the time, not just about Lord of the Rings, but this one was specifically about that. And he quoted the book so much that it, it became actually the first time I spoke at a Mockingbird conference. Um, I sort of went with that theme because it he made it come to life and and drew the parallels with the gospel so well that it taught you to find the gospel in everything. Mm. And um, he, I, I think he was just a super Lord of the Rings fan, Hobbit fan, Tolkien fan, and it came up a lot. But it was because of those thematic elements that he sifted out um, and made come to life, which he did with, with everything. You, you write that Tim Keller taught about a Jesus who transcended political and economic systems, and we, we kind of have a sense of that, that he, he obviously wouldn't point the, to Jesus to the left or to the right. He doesn't belong to this party or that party, but what did it mean that he, he taught, taught about a Jesus who transcended economic systems? Is that perhaps aimed at those that might see Jesus as a capitalist? Perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, so growing up in the southeast in a, a red state, surrounded by red states, I had an idea that you could only be a Christian if you were a member of a certain political party, a certain mindset. So when I moved to New York and met a liberal Christian, I was just like, I don't know if that's possible. Are you sure? <laughs> um, so my, you know, my parameters were being constantly challenged. But I remember, um, in particular, one sermon very early on when I was there that. Um, Tim gave, and he talked about how Jesus wouldn't have been a capitalist or a socialist. And I just remember thinking, how how is that even biblical? Like, how can you make that claim? Um, because he did. He talked about how Jesus transcended every you know economic system, every political system we could imagine. He would not have put himself into that category. And um, I just remember that being an eye-opening moment because I. I seriously equated my political beliefs with my Christian beliefs such that they had to be sort of one and the same. And the idea that God was bigger than that, again, um, he was just getting bigger than I had ever let him be. And um, that that just changes everything. Well, uh, Stephanie, you did, I mean, you would expect you would meet Tim Keller. You met him. Tell us about that that first time. Uh, obviously, there's some humor in there. 
<laughs> yeah, they um, they had a, it was either a prospective members or a new members sort of um, coffee hour after church. Mm -hmm. And Tim sort of worked his way around the room and introduced himself to people. And I was like a, a giddy little schoolgirl. I was so nervous. I really wanted to meet him, um, but I was also incredibly anxious about it. So um, by the time he got to me, I introduced myself and I said that I had heard about him back in Birmingham from Harry Reader. And he, we talked a bit about that. And, um, and I think I just started to devolve into sort of um, a nervous puddle after that and t just talking about how amazing his preaching was and how, how much, how amazing I thought he was. And he was just so incredible. And he, I could almost physically see him sort of shrink back a bit and maybe even take a step physically back mm. and sort of kindly and generously, but firmly wrap up the conversation. And as he walked away, I remember thinking that he did that because I was starting to focus on him so much and he wasn't comfortable with that. And though I was a bit embarrassed for having done it, I realized like that is exactly what I would have hoped for from him because we're in this age of celebrity pastors and Tim could be called a celebrity pastor, but he never would have called himself that. And everything that he did with Redeemer was designed to keep that from happening down to a, a simple interaction with me, um, but also bigger kind of guardrails in place in the way the church was designed. So it was just such an encouraging moment to see that he he was as humble as I had hoped he would be, even if that occurred at the expense of my own embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you even had a Twitter exchange with him. Yeah, this was several years ago. Um, but he was, um, he did these Q and A's on Twitter. I think they were called like ask Tim or something like that. And I can't remember how it came up, but I asked him about a Martin Luther quote. Um, Luther said, you have as much laughter as you have faith, I believe. And I asked him about that and he responded that, yes, that's my favorite quote of Luther's, or maybe he said one of my favorite quotes, but um, I was just thrilled because, you know, Luther has said a lot of things <laughs> and Luther yep. is a favorite of, you know, people like Tim Keller. Um, but the fact that he focused on that as one of his favorite quotes was so comforting to me because, you know, here was a guy that was, Tim was so well-read, so well-spoken, so brilliant. Um, but he would go on Twitter and talk about how he hated broccoli, you know, like he was just, he was all the things. And I loved that. He loved that Luther quote. Mm -hmm. Well, Stephanie Phillips is my guest and she is a writer for Mockingbird Ministry. She's talking to us from Sydney, Australia. We're talking about her recent piece, Tears of Hope and Gratitude in Memoriam and Anticipation, the now and not yet grace of Tim Keller. And Stephanie, you, uh, write about how you were contemplating uh, leaving New York City, and then a series of events, uh, if I remember correctly what you read, it, it, it helped to bring home to you that everything that happens in your life is an expression of God's grace and love. Uh, can, can you talk about those circumstances? Yeah, I think I, it must have been there about a year, a year and a half, and it was tax time. And my dad had a friend who was his accountant who did his taxes for free. So he asked him to do mine. And um, mm -hmm. they came back to me and I owed New York State, I think, like $10,000. Wow. 
which I did not have. I mean, as a, even as a dentist in New York, I lived paycheck to paycheck. Just um, it's a crazy way to live. But um, I I freaked out and I called my dad and um, he said we had a very tense conversation because he had not been thrilled about my moving there. Neither of my parents were thrilled. Um, and he suggested that I come back. And I thought, you know, I was going to have to come back financially speaking. Up to that point in my life, had seen things like that as, okay, God's showing me a sign. It was very simplistic, you know, mm -hmm. my way of looking at God. Like, he's showing me a sign. I've done something wrong. That's why this is happening. Mm. Um, but a friend, actually my very liberal friend, who I thought couldn't have been a Christian, but <laughs> turned out to be, um, she recommended her accountant. And this guy figured it all out so that I didn't owe anything. I actually was owed a bit of money. But beyond that practical aspect of it, um, it was something that I had to think through and realize God had led me here. I was thriving here. My faith was thriving in a way it never had. And maybe this wasn't punishment. Maybe this was God loving me in a way that I had never considered he, he could. Um, going back to that idea of God being bigger than I had ever let him be. So um, I decided to stick it out and just to kind of try to find out what he was doing. And sure enough, with that accountant, everything worked out. But it made me realize that, again, not everything is about me. God is doing something bigger here than I can see. And it's not all just a zero sum game. Bad equals punishment. Good equals love. It was um, more than that, more nuanced and more beautiful. And that was such a shift for me. Um, and really, it was because I was immersed in the gospel and in the grace that, teach, that Tim was teaching that I was even able to see that. And and one of the consequences that, that flowed out of that, um, you actually met your husband by, st yeah. by, by staying. Yeah. Yeah. He was, um, we had small groups at Redeemer um, and he had lived in New York before I moved there and was a member of a small group and his company was moving him around, but then he ended up coming back to New York. And by that time I had joined the small group that he had been in. And so I met him um, in the church, in, well, in the lobby at Hunter College where Redeemer met um, through a mutual friend in that small group that we were both members of. So mm -hmm. that's the first time we saw each other and we were friends for a while and then um, dated. And yeah, so I met um, I met Jason through Redeemer. So he, yeah, <laughs> Redeemer has given me many, many things. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephanie, our time's going very quickly, but uh, thank you so much for joining us today, especially from uh, Sydney, Australia. Well, what was your reaction? I mean, I could only imagine uh, what it was, but can you tell us your reaction when you heard that, uh, that he had that he had passed, that he had gone to be with the Lord. Yeah, we knew it was happening because his son was, you know, tweeting things and um, mm -hmm. was generously, you know, kind of letting everyone know what was going on. It's still um, quite a punch, you know, to to hear that news. Um, so it was sort of inevitable, but at the same time, it was a deep sadness um, to realize that Tim was no longer, you know, walking among us on this earth. Um, luckily I was able to, um, steal some time by myself and just, uh, cry for a while, which mm -hmm. was really helpful. And, and just kind of think about all the, the gifts that I had in my life because Tim was a vessel of God's grace. Um, but one of the things that came out of that after I processed some of that grief was that heaven became so much more real to me because 
Tim was such a force on this earth and, you know, a humble one, but such a force that when I think about heaven now and him not being on earth, the only option for me is that he's in heaven and that makes heaven more real to me. And that's such a, a powerful witness, I think, to him because heaven was something he spoke about as a reality. He talked about death and um, the fact that his faith was only strengthened by the challenge he faced. Um, it just makes the idea of heaven a very clear reality, reality to me in a way that it wasn't before. And it's, it's such a gift, and I'm so thankful for that. I, I, I wanted to go back to something that uh, I, I meant to ask you earlier, and, and you said that he had a, a, I think you used the word or the phrase, a sacrificial vision for churches. Um, can you talk about what that is? Yeah. Um, so Redeemer was designed so that they planted a lot of churches and it gave a lot of resources for that. So that's one way, but it was also designed so that when it reached a certain size, they divided and they had services in other parts of the city so that they were dividing into a West side service and then into a downtown service so that it was still all affiliated with Redeemer, but um, it wasn't Tim who was preaching at every service. For a while, he would go back and forth between some of them, but um, ultimately he planted pastors at those other services so that he wasn't the head of that church, um, which I think is really challenging in this day and age of, like we said, the celebrity pastor. It would be easy for him to be the face of every single service. And that's what a lot of people would have preferred mm -hmm. because you, you would see at some services, they would not put in the bulletin or on, on the website who was preaching that week because they knew people would come only for Tim yeah. and wouldn't come to the service if he wasn't preaching. And when I, when you would get to the church service and open the bulletin and see whose name was there, if it wasn't Tim's name, you would see people get up and leave before it even began. Mm. I mean, it was shocking but he did everything he could to safeguard against that. Um, so just the design of the church itself, you know, the fact that he didn't print his name in the bulletin until the last, you know, or didn't advertise where he was going to be preaching that Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, he, he did everything he could to keep it from being about him. Stephanie, his, uh, Tim Keller's final words, his dying words are actually recorded. I would assume his son uh, took note of those and then shared them. Uh, what what yeah. were they and uh, how did you react to those? Yeah, among the last things he said, um, he, he said, there is no downside to my going, not in the slightest. And again, it's that idea of um, heaven being so real and him knowing that he was headed for something better and that that faith, that strong, enduring faith that, that he was okay. And also get, saying that as a gift to his family that they would be okay because he was. I just felt like that spoke volumes about what he believed uh, and that he believed Jesus's promises would hold true to him and that they would endure for his family as well. I, I just, I, once again, he has a way of putting things that is so memorable and enduring. And to me, that was just an incredible gift he left behind. Well, you've been describing this throughout, uh, Stephanie, but kind of coming full circle. Can you kind of summarize Tim Keller's legacy uh, in your life? 
in so, in so many ways, he kind of, I don't, this sounds hyperbolic, but sort of saved my life in the sense that um, my faith would not have gone on had it been the same that I grew up with. I wouldn't have been able to maintain my own faith. And because he showed me that it wasn't up to me and I didn't have to maintain it, but that it was Jesus mm-hmm. who does that for us, um, that's what allows me to remain a Christian. That's what allows me to um, give that faith to my sons. You know, um, that's that's what keeps me going, knowing that I am free to be loved by God and that that is never going to change. That kind of freedom just makes everything different. Finally, you wrote your piece, Tears of Hope and Gratitude in Memoriam and Anticipation, the now and not yet grace of Tim Keller for Mockingbird Ministries. Both people would like to read more of your, your um, article, Stephanie, or I know there's other quite a number of other contributors, too. How can people find it? Yeah, it's uh, mbird.com, and they, they have a blog, they have um, books and magazines, they have a, a literary sort of magazine that they put out. Um, they have conferences all over the country every year. Um, I wrote a book with a friend, a fellow Mockingbird contributor that's on the website. So, yeah, there's lots of resources, um, a whole lot available if you um, if you want to hear more about Grace. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Stephanie Phillips, author of the piece, Tears of Hope and Gratitude. In memoriam and anticipation, the new and not yet grace of Tim Keller. She wrote it for Mockingbird Ministries. Go to mbird.com. She spoke to us from Sydney, Australia. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Joel Beakey with an introduction to the Christian teaching and lifestyle of the Puritans. They were nicknamed Puritans derisively, Mm -hmm. but after a while they embraced the word, even though they didn't like it, because they said, we're not Puritans, we're just poor sinners saved by grace, but they became known as Puritans, and so that has that stuck. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.